while we wait on those notes to get over here, I want to uh, just mention a few things to you before we jump into the, uh, the teaching tonight. Of course, we're going to be in the book of Hebrews. It's going to be in chapter number 9. We left off this uh, past spring at chapter number 8. One of the most important things to ascertain to you study a book of Bible is to understand. Now, we all understand the Holy Ghost wrote the Word of God. There's no question. But God also used human instrumentality to do so. And so one of the most important things you can understand is, is who is the pen holder, uh, who the book is written to, when the book is written, and what the aim of the particular book is. Uh, this is what we call rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, another good word for it is dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is the belief, and uh, is the reality that God dealt with man in different ways throughout different times and, and periods in human history. And uh, that though all the Bible is written for us, it is not all written to us. And that's an important distinction to make. Uh, it's not to suggest that the Old Testament is not as important as the New Testament. In fact, uh, you know, Paul said these things were written for our admonition. So he acknowledges they're not written to us, but God has a purpose for us in this uh, church age to understand these truths. But it is to acknowledge that there is a particular historical context to every portion of the Word of God, and that the starting point for studying the Bible ought to be to ascertain what that uh, context is and try to understand the passage in the context. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you as a preacher, uh, you know, a lot of times you preach a lot of different messages in a lot of different ways. Uh, I, I preach messages sometimes that no doubt people have looked at it and said, well, I don't know where you got that. Uh, but... Uh, if you're going to study the Bible and understand it, then you need to understand the context and the meaning of it. Uh, the book of Hebrews uh, was written during the church age. Uh, it was written to believers, but it was written to Jewish believers. In fact, we call the books of Hebrews and James and the first and second Peters the Hebrew Christian epistles. A lot of people try to take this passage and, and place it in the tribulation period. I don't believe that's so, because I believe that that's what God intended to gave it during the tribulation period. A lot of people try to take it and uh, shoot one it into suggesting that there's no application for us today as Gentiles. I don't believe that. I believe God has an application for us too. Uh, but then there's other folks that try to shoot one it into saying that it's just like every fallen epistle, and that uh, we as Gentiles, it ought to apply to us in every street relevant. I think we have to be cautious about that too. So the book of Hebrews was written. And I believe, you can believe what you want, we'll get to heaven and won't argue about it then, but I believe it was written by the Apostle Paul. I have a lot of reasons for believing that, but uh, again, I, the folks that believe somebody else wrote it has their reasons too. But I believe it was written by the Apostle Paul. I believe it was written to first century Jewish individuals, uh, Christians. Uh, I believe that there are multiple applications of the book of Hebrews. And uh, one of the important distinctions to make, I believe, when you read any of Paul's writings, Paul never took the salvation of the of the reader for granted. And so there's going to be times where we read this book of Hebrews and people say, well, that kind of sounds like it's written to somebody who doesn't know what say. And other places where you're going to read it and say, well, that kind of sounds like it's written to folks who know for sure that they're saved. Times you're going to read it and salvation is going to seem as simple and cut and dry as we know that it is in truth to be. And other times before we pass this about holding out and striving and so on and so forth, you're going to look at it and say, well, who exactly is Paul writing to? And the simple answer is, he's writing to Jewish individuals that are faced with the gospel of Christ. They have either placed their faith already in Christ or they are at the door. And he is exhorting them to cast off the bondage of the Old Testament law and to embrace the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to see him as the, as the finished sacrifice the finished work, and to see him as sufficient. And uh, one of you showed up, you got my notes. I'll get their notes, got my notes. <laughs> and uh, now, there's something else that's important for us to understand as we're into the Hebrews, and I'm sure there's going to be people that just wonder about these wonderful things that we do. If you have a pen in hand, a piece of paper, uh, then I want you to write these down. If you don't, uh, or if you've got in but waiting on a piece of paper, then after the class, get with somebody, or get with me, and I can get you back to you. The book of Hebrews contains five what we call parenthetical warning passages. 
Now, a parenthetical passage is a place where the writer deviates from the overall thought that he has been uh, conveyed. And let, let me give you a, a good modern uh, word for it. We call it rat trail. <laughs> and uh, so next time that I follow a rat trail, I'm just going to tell you I'm going off on a parenthetical passage. But in other words, you're following a vein of thought, and then for whatever reason, of course we know when we're talking about inspired scripture, that the Holy Ghost prompts uh, the writer to deviate and to begin to consider a parallel thought that is parenthetical. Now, Paul had a, a habit of doing this. In fact, he does in the book of Romans, chapter 5, and that great discourse about Adam. And uh, one of the things that fascinates you is read through Romans, chapter 5, when you come to that parenthetical statement where he's explaining how that Adam is a type of Christ and that Christ is, uh, you know, a, a type of Adam and so on and so forth, to, to stop and go back and read it without that parenthetical passage. And I'm not suggesting that it should be there that's less inspired or anything, but I'm saying read it without that parenthetical passage, then read the parenthetical passage, then put it all back together and read it again, and it'll give you a clearer understanding of that passage. Uh, the book of Hebrews is much the same way. There are five parenthetical warning passages that are given, and uh, one commentator uh, encourage this, and I did it, it really blows you away just how, how clear it makes the book of Hebrews. Uh, he said the very same thing I just said from read through without these passages, purposely skip over these passages, read through Hebrews. Go back, read each of these passages individually, digest them individually, then go back and read through Hebrews with those parenthetical passages right back where God took And it will amaze you two things. One, how much it opens up these passages and two, how easy it is to see the overall logical arc, the, the, the arc of the argument that uh, the Apostle Paul is giving. So here are those five warning passages I want you to drop these down. In chapter number two, verses one through four, this is the first parenthetical passage. And if you need a title for it, this is the title of commentator David, I thought it was pretty good. Disregarding the salvation of God. That's what he's warning against. He's warning against disregarding the salvation of God. Then the second one goes from chapter 3 and verse 7. It's chapter 3, verse 7, down to chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13. So chapter 3, verse 7 to chapter 4, verse 13. And he titled this one, Disbelieving the Sufficiency of God. The danger of disbelieving the sufficiency of God. The third one goes from chapter 5, verse 11. Chapter 5, verse 11. And it goes all the way to chapter 6, verse 20. Which I believe is the end of that chapter. I'm not even saying that. I'll have to go back to look. Uh, but uh, chapter 6, verse, uh, verse 20. It is. It's the end of chapter 6. Uh, so that's chapter 5, verse 11, and chapter 6, verse 20. He gave this title, Discrediting the Son of God. Discrediting Son of God. The fourth one goes from chapter 10, verse 26. Chapter 10, verse 26, down to verse 39. Chapter 10, verse 26, down to verse 39. He titled this one, Despising the Spirit of God. And then the fifth and final one is in chapter 12. Chapter 12. And it goes from verse 15 to verse 29. Chapter 12, verse 15, verse 29. Title this one, Disobeying the Summons of God. Now, all five of these are warnings that are given to the reader of the book of Hebrews. And uh, you'll be amazed if you'll just do that little that little exercise that I gave you. And uh, which one did you need? I will. I'll tell you what. Did anybody get the title? You might get all the titles, great things, got all the titles. I think you got all of them. For the sake of the report, and I'll let you get the things, or I'll get you right at uh, But uh, each of these is a parenthetical warning passage, and if you'll do that little exercise, and uh, it's, fi- it's 15 after 7. All right, I'll do it again. All right, thank you, God. All right. 15 after 7. All right. Uh, so if you'll go through and read each and every one of these individually, go through, skip those, read the book without them, then 
go back in, sort of back in, it, it'll amaze you uh, just how much uh, the book of Hebrews will clarify. Now, uh, before we jump in, I want to remind you that the theme of the book of Hebrews, we, we determined who we believe or who I believe is the writer. Uh, if you don't believe it, the next time you teach the Hebrews, you're welcome to give us whoever you think. But I, I believe it's the Apostle Paul. Uh, we, we believe that it's being written to Jewish individuals in the first century that are faced with Judaism at their backs, with the cross in front of them. They're at a crux in their life, and they've either not yet believed, they're being exhorted to believe, or they have believed, and they are uh, being exhorted to stand firm in that belief, not go back to Judaism. Uh, and we might add this third caveat. It's also written to individuals that have believed, but never grown in their faith. Uh, you'll see that especially in like chapters 3, 4, and 5. Uh, Paul deals with that. The purpose of the book of Hebrews is to show that Christ is better. That in all ways, Christ is superior and superlative to the Old Testament law. That is the intent that is given. And as we've studied through these various chapters, we saw that we have a better high priest. We saw that it's a better way of salvation and so on and so forth. In chapter number 9, we enter probably, in my opinion, one of the most fascinating portions of the book of Hebrews. And uh, the theme uh, for about the next half of this chapter, we're going to do our best to make it through the whole chapter, is that we have a better sanctuary than they had in the Old Testament. We have a better sanctuary than they had in the Old Testament. Now, what do we mean when we say that? Well, the sanctuary in the Old Testament, there were two of them. There was a tabernacle, there was a temple. For whatever reason, the Hebrews writer is referencing the tabernacle as opposed to the temple. There's various opinions about that. Uh, a lot of people believe it's because the, the temple is more suited to be a type of the millennial kingdom and the millennial temple then. Certainly, I think there's some truth to that. Some people claim, I think this is for good reason, for a sojourning people, just like the children of Israel were. And as such, the tabernacle was a more fit type uh, as to what God is doing in this current age in his ministry through the Lord Jesus Christ and his priesthood. So the tabernacle is what is set forth. I want to read a few verses here. In fact, we're going to read the first five verses of chapter number nine and uh, jump on in. Now, look what it says in verse number one. It says, Then verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick, and the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. After the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot speak, now speak particularly. So, uh, the word tabernacle essentially means a tent. And uh, the Old Testament tabernacle was a structure, uh, 45 feet long in totality, 15 foot wide. Uh, it was a tent structure. It was uh, partitioned into two rooms. There was what's called the holy place. Uh, it was an area about 30 feet by 15 feet. And then there was a smaller area at the back of it called the holiest of all, or the holy of holies. And uh, this little room was 15 by 15 feet. And the apostle lays forth each of these uh, various pieces of furniture and matters and details. I'll tell you, if you want an exhaustive study, go to the last half of the book of Exodus, and you can see all the details that God gave. But for the purpose that the apostle gives before us tonight, his intention is merely to show what the overall structure of this tabernacle was, what his function was, and to show us how that now we have a better tabernacle. There was a human tabernacle, and that's what we just read about, but then there is also a heavenly tabernacle. So the thing that he deals with in the five verses that we've read are its sacred furnishing. Some people will call it the furniture of the tabernacle. And the first thing that he does is gives us a definition of God's intent. It says in verse 1, the first covenant had also ordinances, and he notes two things, ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. So the Old Testament tabernacle was given by God, and it has uh, detailed within the uh, responsibilities and activities of it, services that the Bible calls divine, that God intended for man to be able to approach unto God through the mediation of those Old Testament priests. They were divine services. I think sometimes you get the idea, when you look back at the Old Testament, that there was something wrong with the law. Well, now listen, there was something wrong with the law, in as much as it was insufficient. Let us never forget. 
God did give those commandments. I think there's a tendency sometimes you bring up anything in the Old Testament. You'll have somebody who will say, Oh, preacher, but that's Old Testament. Like God didn't write the Old Testament. Uh, now, that's not to suggest we all live under the body of the Old Testament law, but it is to say we don't try to understand what God is doing in the Old Testament. And inasmuch as it has a, a, a spiritual application to us in this church, we ought not dismiss that. The Old Testament law, and I'll just say this as a means of information, if you want to drop this down, you might help you. The Old Testament law was comprised of three separate categories. There was moral law. The moral law dealt with how we treated each other, how we behaved, in other words. It, it, it dealt with how we pleased God and, and how we uh, kept ourselves from being bad, reprehensible human beings. And then there was societal law. Societal law was getting akin to the legal system that we have today, which serves the same function. In other words, it kept folks from killing each other. Or if they did kill each other, they made for An example of societal law would be if I have an ox, and if you have an ox, and if my ox kills your ox, you owe me an ox. Okay? And God gave structures for all this. Uh, and then there's what we call ceremonial law. Ceremonial law uh, is uh, rituals and rites that God gave the Old Testament that uh, they do deal with the people, but primarily the priesthood and sacrifices. And their purpose was to picture Jesus Christ. And so when people talk about the Old Testament law is done away with, well, it's true that the ceremonial law is done away with in Christ. It's true that in a sense the societal law is done away with, in that we don't have uh, a, a theocracy. Uh, we're not worried about the same Hebrew coming by and, you know, uh, giving us a ticket for not mowing our yard or something. Uh, the moral law still exists, although some of it has been surpassed. And that's what Christ was talking about uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, when he uh, talked to uh, the Jewish individuals, he says, you know, that, well, you know, Moses says, I'm not, uh, you know, kill anybody, but I say, I'm doing the hate of brethren and part of our cause, you've already killed them. Uh, Moses says, you're not committed adultery, but I say, if you look upon one to lust after him, you've committed adultery already. So the moral law was not necessarily just threat, but there was a superlative righteousness. And this is what Christ was talking about when he said to his disciples, except your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of Pharisees. So that's just a little overview of the Old Testament law. Uh, they were divine servants. God ordained them. But notice it was a worldly sanctuary. That doesn't mean that it was worldwide, but it means it was of this earth. It was a physical tent. It was a physical tabernacle. The physical place you could have gone to. And the reason is because God was ministering amongst a worldly people. Now, you might say, well, preacher, are we not worldly people? I mean, we have flesh and bone. That's true. But what knits us together and what is the substance of our relationship with God is not that which is seen, but that which is not seen. Uh, it is a spiritual kinship that we have with God, not an earthly one. Notice the description it gives in the next few verses. It talks first off about the holy place. And I want to give you just a basic, simple overview of the tabernacle. I like to do that. And uh, I'll go ahead and warn you, we say 7 to 8 o'clock, but when we say 7 o'clock, we mean Eastern time, and 8 o'clock usually means Pacific time, so I hope you're ready. Um, that's in the five friends. But, uh, he mentions two things in the holy place. Now, the tabernacle probably is referring to that building, that 45 by 50 foot structure. But the tabernacle in general is actually speaking of space, an area that would have been some of y'all saw me walking around measuring the building. I've got big plans in mind. I hope y'all look good. But the tabernacle was a cordoned off area, 150 feet by 75 feet. And that big area was called the outer court. It was called the court of the Gentiles. It was a place where anybody could go into. And uh, it was a place where the, the average individual could, could enter into. When they were getting a sacrifice, that's where they go to bring their sacrifice. Then you had this structure, 45 by 15 feet. And uh, the, the first part you would come to, 30 foot by 15 foot, was called the holy place. And this was a place where any priest would finish. And within this place, uh, there were a few uh, pieces of furniture. Uh, there was a lampstand that would have been sitting to your left. In fact, today she was called this lampstand in the door. Uh, but this uh, lampstand that would have been sitting there would have been the only light in that building. Uh, the tabernacle was not lit by natural light. It was lit by the light of um, olive oil, pure, even for the, for the light. Uh, and then to the right when you walked in, there would have been a table sitting there. And uh, upon that table would be 12 loaves of what we call show bread, which is unleavened bread. And the priests ate this bread. Uh, every week that bread was, was swapped out. Uh, before you ever got, let me back up, before you ever got in there, in the outer court, there would be two pieces of furniture. First thing you would come to would be the brazen altar, big, tall, and torn, and 
This is where the bullets would have been offered here, the various the five offerings. Uh, actually, only four of them were sacrificial. One of them was a, uh, a meat offering, which was actually bread. But uh, that, that altar of a burnt offering uh, and a burnt sacrifices is where they would have offered those animals. Beyond that, there would have been the, uh, the labor, uh, would have been the place where they would have been able to ceremonially cleanse themselves. Uh, it would have been a big, for lack of a better term, big bowl on pedestal uh, that would have contained water within it. When you went into the holy place, you had the table so red, you would have had the lampstand. Uh, and then in front of you, you would have had the altar of incense. This would be the place they would go and burn incense. That incense represented the prayers of God's people that the high priest was offering up. But notice how he describes it. This is very interesting. You can see in your notes know, a lot can be said about all these pieces of furniture. I thought this was pretty interesting. Uh, you see the lamp stand for enlightenment. That's what lightened things up in there. It features the Holy Spirit. There's uh, an otherworldly life that enlightens the word of God. The loaves, which would have pictured Christ and his sufficiency uh, for God's people as they serve him, they feed upon him, and he is sufficient. But then in verses 3 through 5, it talks about the whole business and within that holy of holies, there's only one piece of furniture, and it was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a, a, a box, actually about the size of most remembrance tables, uh, and it would have been overlaid in gold. It would have had chairs upon it, scenes upon it. It would have had two staves that they would have carried with And a, uh, on the top of it, there would have been a lid. This lid is what we call the mercy seat. Uh, on top of that lid, there would have been two sculptures of angels. Wings outstretched, hovering over the mercy seat. And this would be the place that the blood would be applied. Uh, within this ark, within this box, there were three items. There was a pot of manna from the wilderness, uh, which represented Christ and his sufficiency. Uh, there would have been the table, the unbroken table. Remember, most broke the first table, and then the second table that didn't get broken, they were placed in there. And that shows how that Christ satisfies the law. And then there would have been Aaron's rod and butter. And that picture is the resurrection of Christ in his resurrection power. The Bible says that it was life and the life of the light of you. And then this uh, this lid would have sat on top of it. Here's something interesting though. Notice what it says, verse 3. After the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiness of all, which had the golden censer. I don't know if you know what a censer is, but if you've ever seen it, you've probably seen it when the Roman Catholics in the They'll walk around, they'll have that little thing hanging from the, the, their chain, and they'll have coals in it, they'll burn it incense in. While I don't in any way towards what they're doing, that is what a censer is. What's interesting is you notice there's a piece of furniture missing here, and that is the altar of incense not mentioned. But the censer is mentioned. There's reason for this. Because on the day of atonement, when the high priest would go in to offer atonement for all the children of Israel, he would not go to the altar of incense. He would have a censer in his hand with coals in In the other hand, he would have uh, incense, and he would also have the blood that would be the slain sacrifice. He would bypass the altar of incense. Why? Because inasmuch as he pictured Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ didn't have to offer us prayers. He takes our prayers for us. And he would on that day go in, he would bypass the altar of incense. I don't know where they kept the golden censer most days. But I know on that day and that day alone, on the day of atonement, you wouldn't find the golden censer anywhere in the outer quarter in the holy place. It would have been brought into the holy of holies. And there the high priest, the cloud of that smoke, in some ways picturing how he's concealed from God through the atonement, would uh, apply that blood to the mercy seat. You say, preacher, what's all that about to do? It reminds me of this, of Paul or the Hebrew writer, whoever it is, when he's talking about this, He's not talking about just any sacrifice. He's talking about that grand sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He's not talking about one of the five generic sacrifices. He's talking about that sacrifice on the day of atonement. And the fact that he mentions the censer in the Holy of Holies tells me that he's doing not a, not a work in progress. He's doing a work finished. He's seeing the censer in that place. Of course, the Holy Censer picture prayer in the Ark of Covenant picture provision, the chair of the picture protection. Uh, this is a, uh, you remember when Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, he appeared into heaven and saw the cherubs flying around the front of God with uh, the wings covering their, their face and feet, crying out, holy, 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 the Lord God on his uh, reigning. They were, they were flying around. Uh, I, I believe that what these seraphims picture uh, is the thing that 
out of the mercy seat and crying out of God's people who entered his name for their salvation. And then finally the mercy seat itself. This mercy seat would be, by the way, where the Shekinah glory of God. Now, you won't find the term Shekinah in the King's Bible. But what it describes is the manifest presence of God. On the day of atonement, one day of year, the glory of God would rest itself upon this mercy seat. And God would observe the blood that had been shed. And so that mercy seat was literally the place where the earthly met the heavenly, where the blood was beheld, where atonement was declared over the people. Now, if we say all that, and there's a lot more I want to say, I wish I could say, we want to get on specific time, I might have time to say, but we're going to finish tonight, I think I'm just hurried. But we move on from the sacred furniture. This is what was involved in the tabernacle. That's really not what uh, the Apostle Paul is writing. Verses 6 and 7 point to what he's really writing at and he's bringing this up. He points to the salient features of this. What did it all mean? Verse number 6, now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. So every day, the Old Testament priests would go into the first tabernacle, the holy place. That's where they did the daily administration of their work. So we see a daily limitation. Every day they would go, but they could only go so far. The veil that stood between the holy place and the holy of holies was a consistent reminder to them that on uh, threat, on pain of death, they would not enter into that holy place. But, Look what verse number 7 says. But into the second with the high priest alone. And I'm going to go by himself. Isn't that a good reminder that when Jesus knew to pay the price, he went alone? Uh, listen, we, we've never experienced aloneness like Jesus experienced when he paid for our sins. No matter what we've been through, we're never alone because Jesus has always been through it. But when he died on the cross, he died alone. He did our work alone. It says uh, the high priest went alone. Once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of people. Now, something that would do you some good job if you listen, we ought to get the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus sometimes. I know those are supposed to be books that we for, you know, because they're tough. But you'd be amazed if you get in there and you slug, if you slug, three things two and three times, take notes, get an idea of what's going on, you'd be amazed. The amount of truthful truth that's contained in those books of the Bible, uh, as far as what went on on that day of atonement, the, the, the two goats that were selected, one was slain, one was scapegoat, took into a land uh, where there was no man, picture Jesus taking our secrets away. The overall truth that he's driving at is this that even that only of holiness, the holy place had limitations. They could go in, but they could go no further. But even the Holy of Holies had limitations. You could only go once a year. And you had to go to the place. In other words, this was not a place where mankind was normally welcome. This was a place where, because of the holiness of God, man and his sinfulness was prohibited in going. And notice what the, the function of it is. You see it's sacred furnishings and sailing features, but notice its supreme function. Verse 10 through 10. The Holy Ghost is signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure, notice that word figure, for the tiny being present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diamond washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. Now, the thing that we overall understand, there's so much we can say about those three verses, but is that the Old Testament tabernacle was designed as a parable. That was the purpose of it. Notice that word in verse 9 again, which was a figure. In other words, it was a picture. All these things were given, not, not, to, not for permanence, but for parable. Now, remember, he's writing this New Testament uh, to Jews in the New Testament who are tempted to trust in the Old Testament law. And he's reminding them that God never intended a permanence to the Old Testament tabernacle. This was only temporary. He says this was designed as terrible. And it's a very rich study to spend time looking at the, the veil and the coverings and the board and the, the posts and, and the furniture and all those things point to Christ. I encourage you to study it sometimes. But the whole purpose in all those is simply to show that God had a better sacrifice in 
fact, we're going to see later on that it talks about the sacrifice of Jesus, and it talks about it in the plural, which is very interesting. Not that Jesus gave more than one sacrifice, but that all of the various sacrifices of the Old Testament culminated and were perfected and brought in the singular sacrifice of Jesus Christ. All of these things were designed to terrible. In other words, the Old Testament tabernacle, even though you and I would say here at the state of the church, hey, we read through Leviticus and Numbers and Exodus, you know, and that stuff. so much stuff I'm not familiar with. I don't really know what the purpose of it is. But understand that in God's economy, that was the kindergarten of divine revelation. You know, how many of y'all have ever thought to give And you know you need object lessons, right? Because the younger they are, they need to see something through giving Well, in the same way, the Old Testament tabernacle is not meant to be the supreme revelation. It was meant to be a, a substitute revelation until the true light of Christ was able to shine in the New Testament. It was designed as a parable. But you see at verse number 10 that it was discarded as a parable. It says this, As pertaining to the conscience, verse number 9, which stood only in weeks and dreams of divers washings and gone ordinances, imposed on them until the time of reformation. So there has been a point in time where God has done away with the Old Testament law. Again, that doesn't mean it doesn't have an example and truth to convey to us. But it is to suggest this, that our standing in Christ Jesus ought to be vested singularly and holy in the sacrifice of Christ. Not in earthly ordinances, not in man's ability, not in, in, in uh, spiritual or religious rituals and rites and ceremonies, but wholly and completely in the finished work of Christ on Calvary. He's spoken about the human tabernacle. Then he says a word about the heavenly tabernacle in verses 11 and 12. He says in verse 11, but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So first off, the majesty of this heavenly tabernacle. Now let me say this in no uncertain terms, so you understand me, I don't want you to have to end that. There was an earthly tabernacle. For every component of that earthly tabernacle, there is a heavenly tabernacle. Right now, as we speak, there was a, an ark on earth. We don't know where that ark is now. We know the Revelation. The last time the ark was mentioned in the book of Revelation, it's mentioned in heaven. I don't think, really, I don't think that's talking about the same ark as the Old Testament. I think the ark that's talking about is the ark that's always been in heaven, of which the earthly ark was patterned back. There's an ark in heaven, a table in heaven, Lampstand in heaven. You ever notice how many times the Bible talks about the seven spirits of the Lord as eyes? The book of Revelation. Uh, he's talking about the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's a heavenly lampstand. There's a heavenly table of showbread. Uh, you say, what's that bread? That bread is Jesus. He is the bread of life. Uh, there, there's a heavenly ark. There's a heavenly mercy seat. All of these things. There's a heavenly representative of each and every one of these. So we not say the earth is the representative. All these things are in heaven. And uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews wants to point out that those things are superlative. And he points first off to the fact that they are served by a greater priest. He says Christ being become an high priest of good things. What's he talking about? He's talking about all creatures in Christ Jesus that rewarded us by virtue of our relationship with God through uh, things like the Word of God being illuminated to us, our prayers being answered, God being a, or Christ being a bit high priest, being sensed into our needs, uh, being touched by the feelings of our infirmity. I, I heard somebody, this is about my lesson, but I'm going to be preparing for that passage for a quick presentation, uh, gave good illustration about what that means when he says he's touched with the feelings of our infirmity. He said there's a fellow one day, uh, that was uh, in a music shop, and that music shop had all kinds of kind of music, and there were a couple of parts that And those parts, you can't ask the owner of that music shop about those parts. And uh, that owner said those two parts, high end parts, multi thousand, two thousand dollars, they were in such perfect harmony that if you plucked the string off one, the string on the other one would vibrate. That's how we were neighbor. And uh, you know, that's how God is with us. When somebody floods our heart string, his heart string vibrates. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmity. All these things are provided to us. These are good things to come. 
and was served by a greater priest, but it's situated in a greater place. He says, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, say, not this building, not this creation. It's not physical, it's not temporal, but it's situated in death. But then he speaks of its ministry. He says it's secured by a greater price. Verse number 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained from the blood. Not the blood of bulls and calves that force us into the blood of Jesus Christ. That's, and and I'm, I've got more to say about it a little later on the lesson, but let me just say that's far greater price It's far more secure. But then also it's supported by a greater plan. It says that he has entered in once in the holy place, having obtained eternal victory. There's one thing for the priest to go in and try to get you situated with God. There's a whole other thing for God's only son who are at our mediator and to provide us ingress and a place in the throne room of God. So we have a better sanctuary. Notice the second part. We'll probably hurry through this. We not only have a better sanctuary, but we have a better sacrifice. This is what the rest of this chapter is occupied with. Now, this, uh, and, and, and by the way, it goes beyond this chapter. It goes into chapter 10. But the first thing we're going to look at is what was brought by Christ's sacrifice. In other words, what was accomplished? What did Christ's sacrifice do? I want you to look at verse 13 and 14. It says, For if the blood of bulls and go- of goats and the ashes of an heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctified to the purifying of flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. you hear what he said back in verse number 9? He says, talking about the tabernacle, he says, we can figure for the time in the present, in which were offered those gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. There were two kinds of uncleanness with the file that the Old Testament Israel had faced. There was sinful defilement, and there was ceremonial defilement. Sinful defilement had to do with people sin against God. Every time somebody in the Old Testament sinned against God, they had to take a sacrifice, uh, a, a lamb or a ram or a bullet, but they come before those that bring a turtle dove or a pigeon. They had to bring it to the high priest. They themselves had to kill it. One great misnomer people study Old Testament sacrifices is the idea that the priests killed it. The priests did not kill it. The priest would, uh, would, would be present there to observe that it was done correctly, but it was the responsibility of the person bringing the sacrifice to place their hand over the head of that sacrifice to pronounce all of their sins over its head, thereby symbolically transferring that transgression on him. Then it was their responsibility to kill that sacrifice. Why? Because they committed sin. The only exception to this was on the day of atonement, and the high priest would do it, and the reason he did it was because he was doing it for the entire nation. The rest of the time, it was always the individual that would bring it. But then there was what we call ceremonial uncleanness, ceremonial defilement. You could become defiled, meaning that you couldn't have fellowship with God, not just by committing sin, but by being exposed to things that were considered unclean. If you touched a dead body, uh, in fact, even if you went into a home that had a dead body in it, you were considered defiled, unclean. And you were cooked without pain. Uh, if you were to be around lepers, for instance, that's the reason lepers had to walk around crying, unclean, unclean, unclean. There are various things that cause a person to be unclean. Now, the reason this distinction is important is because there's two things that are spoken of, two types of sacrifices. Look at verse number 13 again. For if the blood of bulls and goats, as speaking about what deals with sin, is I heard one illustration given this where I thought was pretty good. Now, how could how could blood of bulls and goats ever, ever, well, and I don't have a ton. I know I don't talk to my father. I'm pretty Catholic. But why is it that that piece of paper carries its weight? That's no intrinsic value. When you go and write a check for something, you're giving someone a piece of paper. Is it a problem you how silly that is? You give someone a piece of paper, you really in substance so different than this right here, and they're going to give you goods in response to it. You know why? Because the whole thing stands behind that. There's money in reserve, and it's looking forward to a future payment. Well, in the same way, the blood of bulls and goats, that was paper currency. Uh, it wasn't that it had any ability in and of itself, but it looked forward to the sacrifice of Christ. And they would have to give that sacrifice. Now, notice the next thing. And the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the other 
Your father got two or three times in the New Testament that's going to train Jesus. And they never relate to salvation. They relate to ceremonial cleansing. There was actually a piece of furniture that was outside the camp. Not just outside the holy place, not just outside the fort of but was outside the camp. There would be a basin out there. And in that basin would be the ashes of sacrifice. And look at numbers described. I think it's number 16 or 19. I have to go and look. But it's the sacrifice of the red heaven. If you read any kind of stuff about Israel, the price of tie in the Jewish prophecy and stuff like that, and building the temple, one of the things we're going to talk about is the red heaven. Right now, you know why they don't sacrifice anything in Israel right now? It's because everybody is ceremonially unclean. There's not a single person in the entire nation that's not ceremonially unclean. And so they don't sacrifice. And to be ceremonially unclean, they have to give the offering of the red heaven. The red heaven was a specific breed of of a towel of that kind, completely red, doesn't have white hair or brown hair anywhere on it. And uh, they would take this animal, they would kill it, they would uh, sprinkle its blood in front of the tabernacle seven times. Then they would take its body outside of the camp and they would burn it upon an altar until there was nothing left but ashes. And then they'd take those ashes and add them to water. And when a person was unclean, they could touch the dead body or something like that. The way they became clean is they become washed in these ceremonial uh, ashes of reached water. And that's how they became clean and they could enter into the camp once more. Let me just make a few statements about that that encourage me. You know what I like about that? You can't burn ashes. Ashes is something that won't burn. Uh, the fact that they burned that thing to ashes speaks to the fact that the judgment of God has been extinguished through the offering of Christ on Calvary. You can't kindle a fire on ashes. What would they do? Ceremonial defilement uh, and ceremonial cleansing didn't have anything to do with the substance. It had to do with them having confidence to approach unto God. You know why we can have confidence to approach unto God? Because God's uh, fires of wrath have already been extinguished through the offering of Christ on the There's nothing I can add to it. There's nothing I can do to make it better. It's already settled. It's already done. All I have to do is wash it. How do you wash it? Well, water in your Bible. Uh, represents two things. When it's water for the purpose of consuming, it represents the Holy Ghost. When it's water for the purpose of cleansing, it represents the Word of God. So you say, preacher, what does that mean? That means that we approach unto God. We do so, we read the Word of God, it exposes our sin, and then we, through the promise of the Word of God, ask God's forgiveness of that sin, and based upon the Word of God, the promise of God, and the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary, we have our consciences sprinkled, cleansed, from purge from dead works to serve a living God. So he's pointing to, uh, I don't know how we got there, but we got there somehow. He points to the limited value of the law's offering. Uh, he says the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of the heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies the purifying the flesh. But that's all they could do. That's all they could do. They could purify the flesh, they could purify the spirit. They could change the man's outside standing with God. They could change the man's heart condition. But then notice the limitless value of the Lord's offering. Verse 14. He says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. In other words, he paid the price that takes care of our sinful defilement. Now our ceremonial defilement, the fact how we're going to approach unto God with confidence, how we're going to come boldly under the throne room of grace, it purges our conscience, purge your conscience from dead words to serve the living God. In other words, the Old Testament can only deal with the outside, but Christ deals with the inside. It gives the two witnesses there, the cross of Christ, the conscience of Christians, we've studied those for many times. So the first thing that the sacrifice of Christ did was the old transgressions are removed forever. It did away with our past. But then notice the second thing that it does. The New Testament was ratified forever. So the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary, this greater sacrifice for two reasons. One, it addressed our past in a way that the Old Testament sacrifice never could. But two, it provides for us a future that the Old Testament sacrifices never could. And he'll talk about that a little bit later on in the chapter, down in the chapter number 10, about how that those sacrifices represented. Every year they had to give them, it was a reminder that those sacrifices could be cleansed. The reminder that they were still unclean. In the same way that it says earlier on in verse number 8 this chapter, the Holy Ghost is signifying 
that the way in the holiness of all was not yet made manifest while he yet the first tabernacle stand. While that tabernacle stood, it did stand as a meeting place between God and man, but it also stood as a monument to man's inability to enter into that heavenly tabernacle. In the same way, the old sacrifices, while they did provide an atonement, a temporary atonement, they were also a reminder that we did not have perfect fellowship with God. But now when Christ gave his sacrifice, we're given a new kind of fellowship. Notice first a brief statement about our benefits in verse 15. He says, and for this cause, what, what cause? What, what's, what reason? Because Christ died, he offered himself by the eternal spirit without spot or God. Because of that, for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of an eternal, eternal inheritance. So there's two things that relate to what we've got under Jesus. The first is the full cancellation of an immense insolvency. I'm not that word. Well, I guess it's from that word. I'm not that word. Let, let me put it in basic Hill Bill language. All the death of judge was dealt with. That's what the first thing is. That by means of death were the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament. Christ paid our sin debt. Everyone in the Old Testament stood always at odds and in debt with God. But you and I are privileged to stand based upon the, the books of Christ, the credit books of Christ. Our, our debt is paid, and we are able to stand with our past grace. We find a lot of different imagery given in the Old Testament as to what's done with our sins. Sometimes the Bible says that our sins are uh, taken separated from as far as the east is from the west. Sometimes it'll say our sins are cast into the depths of the ocean. Sometimes it'll say that our sins are, are, are put in a bag. And sometimes it'll say that our sins are put behind God's back. Listen, that's all good. Here's the problem. God's already present in the ocean. There's no bag that can conceal our sins from God. Uh, God is not just from the east to the west. He is the east to the west. Amen. He, he's everything. Uh, God can turn around. You can't hide anything behind his back. But the book of Hebrews itself tells us what God does with you in the New Testament. He says, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In other words, our sins are not just concealed from God. But God has judicially decided this just the charge And they're never be brought up again. You see, a full cancellation of an immense insolvency. Then notice the second thing. We have a full confirmation of an immense inheritance. What does he say? Uh, for the redemption, verse 15, of transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Whatever the law could afford to the children of Israel, could only afford it to them until the next year. Couldn't afford it to them anything beyond them. Even if you want to talk about the laws of real estate, which you believe here, in 50 years, which as far as God would promise them anything other than the land being there. You and I, we perceive something far greater and far more lasting. We perceive an eternal inheritance of Jesus Christ. And again, that inheritance is not necessarily something that's counted by dollars and quarters, but it's the blessing that we have through our standing in Christ and our privileged, privileged fellowship with Jesus Christ. So he gives us a brief statement about our benefits. Then he makes a broad statement about our benefactors. And we're going to try to be quick about this get bogged down. It's not very First off, our inheritance is conveyed to us by his death. It's conveyed to us by his death. The first thing he says is there was a need for his death. A need for his death is stated in verses 16 and 17. It says, well, where a testament is. Can I give you a, a, a word we might be familiar with that helps us understand that word testament? A will. A will. Someone's getting ready to die, they write out a will. They want everything that belongs to them, they're going to convey to somebody else. Well, where a testament is, there must also a necessity be the death of the testament. For a testament is of no force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator lives. The will doesn't do to the person who is the benefactor or beneficiary. It doesn't do them any good while the person is alive. I heard somebody talking about that uh, when John D. Rockefeller died. There's two drunks sitting on the side of the street. One of them was falling. And, uh, person looked at him and said, what's the matter with you? And he said, didn't you hear that John Rockefeller just died? And he said, what are you crying for? You weren't related to him, were you? He said, no, that's why I'm crying. <laughs> he 
was happy to see him go. He wished he had been in the family. Yeah. So no good while the testimony of liberty required death. Then notice the need for his death is study. In verses 18 through 22. We're not going to say a bunch of about this because everything will get bogged down. It says, whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. The old testament was not dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. So the apostles saying this isn't a new concept. Uh, Moses in the Old Testament, after the law was given, read before everybody, everybody said, We agree with that, we'll do that, we'll obey that, and he took and sprinkled the law with blood, and sprinkled the people with blood. When they built the tabernacle, he set it up, he sprinkled that with blood. Everything on the Old Testament system, almost everything, was purged with blood, sprinkled and consecrated by blood. So, listen, we seal contracts with sin. God seals with blood. And that was true in the Old Testament, it's true in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, Moses did this, and the reason it says almost all things uh, are uh, by the law purged with blood, because that read heaven. Uh, there's a ceremonial cleanliness to it, and uh, there's a practical application that which it says, listen, Jesus can forgive you of your sin, but unless you'll by faith live in the reality of that forgiveness, your conscience won't be perfect. You may be as forgiven as forgiven can be, still live under the guilt of sins of the past. You won't have faith and trust in the fact that God can give you up to you at all. So that's the reason he gives that little word, that little exception, all over. So the need for his death is, is studied here. In the Old Testament, it was true, just as it was in the New Testament. Now look down verse number 23. We've got something to add. I like this. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy place to make his hands, which are the figures of truth, but in the heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for Now there's three appearings that are mentioned here. I will say a little bit of word about each and every one of them. But I do want to answer the question Dr. Moses and one have, which is this. Why did the heavenly things have to be purified? Were they undefiled? No, they weren't undefiled. But the earthly things were not undefiled in of themselves either. But before mankind could enjoy fellowship, he had to be purified. And anything he could lay his hands on had to be purified by that blood. That blood didn't just stand to, to absolve a, a present uncleanness. But it stood to absolve a perspective of things where something would have been made unclean by man's presence. This is part of the reason I believe in the Old Testament that uh, you realize no Old Testament saint, other than possibly Elijah, although there could be some argument about that, maybe Moses. But in the Old Testament, Old Testament saints weren't taken on the heaven They went to paradise. But Luke speaks explicitly about this. Luke chapter 19 about the uh, rich man and Lazarus says that he. When he opened up his eyes, he was in hell, and that Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom. Now, God doesn't preside in this year of the earth. He resides in heaven. You know that Bible's clear about that. In the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament saints, when they died, they were taken to paradise to Abraham's bosom. That was even as current as the thief that apparently died before Jesus died, because the Lord said to, uh, the thief said, Today shall thou be with thee in paradise. Why was that? Because Christ had to present his blood into the heaven of heavens before mankind to that fellowship with God. Not because the heavens were defiled, but because man was defiled. If he was going to have fellowship with God, he had to be purified. Everything he laid his hands on had to be purified. So there's three appearings that are mentioned here in this passage. And each one of them are encouraging and important. Notice, first off, his present appearing is dealt with in verses we just read. And his present appearing, where Christ is right now, uh, his present appearing is in the heavens and is with the purpose of dealing with sin's power. Now, you might ask, preacher, what does this have to do? Well, remember, he just made the statement back in verse number 17. A testament is of no force after men are birth, is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while testament is. Now, take something that's tragic and sad, which is the reality. You know, a lot of times, a person's will is not even enforced that. 
How many times have you seen where someone has died, they left the wheel, family starts to bust, and the human fight, lawyers are brought in, and sometimes that entire wheel is set aside. Have you ever thought to yourself, maybe at a funeral, or when you've been dealing with your family in a a situation like that, you thought to yourself, boy, I wish so and so could just come back and tell us what they were doing. I've got good news for you. Nobody's going to be tested with Jesus Christ because he's alive. He himself is enforcing his will. He himself is enforcing that test. And he does so presently by appearing in heaven to deal with sin's power. Let's read again. It says, For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the truth, but into heaven itself, now you appear in the presence of God for us. We have a high priest, and he's not in the holy place on earth, or the holy of holies on earth. He's in the holy of holies in heaven. He's in the presence of God himself. He's at the right hand of God the Father, and he is uh, enabling us to serve him, to live for him, and is giving us victory over sin, inasmuch as we'll come boldly into the throne room of grace and obtain mercy and help and grace in a time of need. He's right now in the heaven. You say, Where is Jesus? He's at the right hand of the Father, who ever lived to make intercession for us. Then notice his past appearance is mentioned, and it dealt with the penalty of sin. Verse 25. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world had he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So he is dealing with sin's power on our behalf, right? But he has already dealt with sin's penalty on our behalf. He gave himself once. High priests had to go every year, but not Jesus. He offered himself once. This is why I know Jesus is not on the cross. Jesus is not in the way. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He's not being presently sacrificed. He already gave a, a powerful sacrifice, a singular sacrifice, once and for all. To look for anything else to save us is to convey that Jesus' sacrifice was not enough. His past year, we have dealt with the penalty of sin. He talks about the unremitting sacrifice ordered by the law and the sacrifice ordered by the Lord. In other words, the priest did the year once. Then I'll give this one final thing I'll be done. Notice his promise here in verse 28. He says this, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of men, and unto them the first of them shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Uh, in other words, Jesus is coming to One of the interesting things about the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement, uh, the Old Testament priests wore priestly guard, great duties, and he have a robe of blue, and he have a mitre upon his head, he have a breastplate with precious stones. But do you know that when he went in on the Day of Atonement, he didn't wear anything. He'd wear it into the holy place. Then he would take all of that off, he would cleanse himself, and then he would enter in only a linen guard outfit into the Holy of Holies. Of course, that linen represents the righteousness of Christ. The Old Testament priests had also represented them being naked and open before God. He would go in, he would perform all the various rites and sacrifices. And after he was done, the day of atonement was not over. He still had a public sacrifice to give, and a personal sacrifice, so on and so forth. When he would come out, he would put on those guards of men. In other words, when he went in, he went in without those robes of glory. When he came out, he came out and rose in those glorious robes once again. When he came out, the atonement for himself had already been made. He went in carrying the sins of people in the blood of that bullet that had been sacrificed. When he came out, the blood had been applied, the sin had been dealt with, and he came out with that glorious garb on once again. I believe that's not lost on the reader of the first century reading the book of Hebrews. I think he understood that Jesus is not going to be made sin for us anymore. He went and bore our sin to Calvary. He went robed only in his righteousness and exchanging his righteousness for our sinfulness. He carried that perfect blood in. He applied it to the mercy seat. And when we see him again, he's not coming in humble simplicity. When we see, when this world sees him again, I know rapture's coming. When the world sees him again, they're going to see him in his glory and splendor with 
sin the second time. He's coming back. We truly have a far better sanctuary and sacrifice than they ever have. 